When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Azebanato, and you are listening to the Spectacular Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks, and thank you very much indeed to Azzy Bernato in our intro there. A wonderful intro, uh, a wonderful name. Uh, as we all know, I'm a big fan of names with Zs in. They're interest- instantly interesting and exciting. So uh, thank you, Azzy Bernato, for your support and for being a friend of the tennis podcast. Uh, there was a Friends episode last week. Uh, paying tribute and telling the story of Juan Martín del Potro. So check that out if you'd like to. We have a whole lot of stuff to cover in today's weekly podcast. We have all, uh, to to greater and lesser extents, just watched the first match of the year of world number one, Novak Djokovic, beating Lorenzo Massetti in two straight sets. He is playing in Dubai this week. Uh, he says he couldn't have picked a better place to start his year, um, except he literally did pick a, well, certainly a different place to start his year. Um, but he was, I mean, honestly, David, you, you watch more of this than, than Matt did, who declared declared to have been watching, eating dinner for, for much of the match. But we sat through it and it was, it was pretty unremarkable. I mean, remarkable in how unremarkable it was. It was just ruthless, efficient Djokovic like he'd never been away. Yeah. Yeah. If you rewound to any point of his mostly dominance a year ago or four months ago, it was just typical of what we saw all year. He he looked pristine, really, form-wise. And I think he was buoyed by a a positive reception from the crowd um i think dubai is a certain kind of crowd that maybe he won't get elsewhere necessarily um was it'll be one of the interesting things to see won't it when he eventually does get out in front of other crowds to see whether there's any atmosphere uh anti him or particularly for him or divided well there was none of that in this crowd it was just all very warm and and fluffy for him and uh yeah he came out and I think he it immediately got him in a good mood and look he's just 
he just remains an incredible athlete, particularly for his age. I mean, I know he's not as old as Federer and Nadal and some of the other players, but he he doesn't look like he's got any miles on the clock whatsoever physically. Uh, he looks he looks at the same as he did six years ago. And um, Lorenzo Massetti, I thought, was mostly a bit disappointing. He he had a, a bit of a flurry. And there was one moment where Djokovic absolutely raved at his own support team, which had Goran Ivanovic in the box. I think probably because they weren't getting into it enough or something like that. And he absolutely launched a volley towards them when he saved a couple of break points. But other than that, I mean, it was just, it was easy. Yeah, that was the only moment of real jeopardy, wasn't it? Uh, So Djokovic, of course, the former champion in Dubai, he marches on to the second Round now, this return obviously it was it was anticipated for many weeks. I think we knew in Australia that Djokovic intended to play Dubai, and it, it, we knew that restrictions were such in Dubai that that would be possible. We know that this is a week when he can play or is playing to save his world number one ranking. Daniil Medvedev can take that from him in Acapulco this week. Now, Djokovic has given some very generous comments um, about Medvedev in that regard. He says he thinks it's only a matter of time uh, before Medvedev is world number one. And when he does take, when that does eventually happen, he will be deserving of it, which is, you know, very gracious. However, I, I do think he is motivated by retaining that world number one spot for as long as he possibly can. He's on a streak of more than 300 weeks at world number one, which is extraordinary. And I do think that is a huge motivation for him playing this week. Um, but it, it the return became even more acutely anticipated last week uh, when Novak Djokovic gave an interview to the BBC's media editor, Amal Rajan, uh, now, this was announced. I woke up on Tuesday morning to a BBC News alert on my phone uh, saying he'd done this interview and there were a number of quotes from it. And the news alert informed me that it would be running in a half hour dedicated special at 8.30 p.m. on on BBC One. I don't know what's usually on at 8.30 p.m. Uh, on a Tuesday was, on BBC One. It was a One. show, Catherine. Was I, it? I, I had a look. Right. Well, it, I thought it'd be something more high profile than that, but he 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 knocked he elbowed the gardening show out of the way. It reminded me a bit of the um, the Harry and Meghan Oprah interview last year. Schedules were cleared for that, weren't they? I think that was, one was on ITV. But anyway, it ran. It was watched by many. I don't think it's uh, now the only sort of big spotlight TV interview that he's done. He's employed this very high profile. PR agency based in London that have done a lot of uh, crisis PR and this is sort of straight out of the playbook Um, and I think you have to bear that in mind when you're watching the whole thing not saying that's not the right thing to do it's probably what I would do in in his situation his situation needed PRing you could make the case um, that he wouldn't be in any of this situation were it not for one public relations misstep that Instagram post Um, where he jauntily gloated about his permission exemption. But anyway, we won't get into all of that. He has been on a PR charge. uh, And here is some of what he said to Amal Rajan on the timing of his positive COVID result. 
He said, I understand there's a lot of criticism. I understand that people came out with different theories on how lucky I was or how convenient it is. But no one is lucky and convenient of getting COVID. Millions of people are still struggling around the world. I take this very seriously. I really don't like someone thinking I've misused something in my own favour in order to get a PCR test and eventually go to Australia. Incidentally, he he wasn't pressed on uh, the data that's been um, uncovered by B- BBC and Der Spiegel about the discrepancies uh, in the code numbers of his uh, positive and negative test results and pretty forensic research been done in that department. I was surprised he wasn't pressed on that, particularly because... That is BBC research. But anyway, um, on Australia, he said that it was not the regular kind of training days that I would normally have prior to Grand Slam competition. I had helicopters flying above every single training session that I had on Rod Laver Arena, cameras all over the place. I felt the energy and that the looks from my colleagues and people that were in the tennis facility, that really hurt me a lot. Um, Incidentally, he said this week that he... He's felt a far warmer reception in the locker room in Dubai. He said, I understand that obviously they had a perception that was based on what they were seeing from media reports. And I wasn't going out in the media because of what was previously said in respecting the legal process and respecting the Australian Open. Uh, He said, but at that time, I really wanted to speak to everyone and give my explanation. The reason why I was deported from Australia was because the Minister for Immigration used his discretion to cancel my visa based on his perception that I might create some anti-vax sentiment in the country or in the city, which I completely disagree with. Uh, He further elaborates uh, that I was never against vaccination, but I've always supported the freedom to choose what you put in your body. He described himself as a great student of wellness, well-being, health and nutrition. He said, I understand that globally globally everyone is trying to put a big effort into handling this virus and seeing hopefully an end soon to this virus. He said he will keep an open mind. But ultimately, he said, the principles of decision making on my body are more important than any title or anything else. I'm trying to be in tune with my body as much as I possibly can. He says he hopes vaccination requirements in tournaments will change as he wants to play for many more years. For now, though, he says missing big tournaments is the price he's willing to pay. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so finally, the confirmation that he is not vaccinated against COVID-19. Um, he says, though, that he's not anti-vax. I mean, my feeling on that is that at this stage in a pandemic with many billions of doses of the vaccine administered, um, if you haven't had the vaccine, then you are anti-vax, whether you brand yourself as that or not. I think that is that is a PR decision um, to not sort of want to stand underneath that banner of being anti-vax, perhaps because... As he explains, you know, he, it, it's that perception of him being a figurehead for the anti-vax movement that he thinks has has got him into to a lot of this pickle. So maybe he's distancing himself from being that figurehead, um, but he, if, in my mind, that doesn't distance him from being anti-vax. Um, the evidence is there. Um, I, I don't love the sentiment, the 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 language about perception. I understand that they had a perception based on media reports, you know, that's, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I apologise if you perceived 
that I had done something wrong. I, I, I don't love that language. And I, I just, I don't, I don't love, you know, the suggestion that, that, that was in there that, you know, what he puts in his body as an athlete is, you know, his body is somehow more precious than all of ours. I haven't, I haven't had the vaccine because I'm, I'm willy nilly about what I put in my body because I don't, I don't give two hoots because my body isn't a temple. I mean, you know, I probably have a bit more gluten than Novak Djokovic and a bit more gin, but I really care about what I put in my body and I really, my heckles really get up um, when I hear that talk about, oh, but I'm an athlete. I'm particularly careful about what I put in my body. Um, and I understand that from an anti-doping point of view, but you're the only you're the only man in the world's top 100 that hasn't had this vaccine. If there were if there were doping implications, um, I think A, we'd know about it and B, you know, special exemptions would be made or whatever. Um, I So I just, I resent all of that. And I just, you know, watching him tonight, enjoying that crowd, that crowd was there because of the vaccine, because of the many millions and billions of people that have had that vaccine. He was able to enjoy that crowd. He was able to enjoy travelling to another country. He was able to enjoy playing professional sport because of the vaccine. And I if he's not anti-vax, I would I would have liked to have heard more appreciation of that and more humility about it. Um, I've spoken for about nine minutes straight. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, Matt, your thoughts? Gosh, yeah. I mean, so many thoughts. I think, firstly, pretty extraordinary to see him directly asked if he's willing to give up the Grand Slam race for this and for him to look Amal Rajan in the eye and say yes he is prepared to miss Roland Garros he is prepared to miss the US Open Wimbledon potentially um, now that might partly be because he expects the rules to change and him to be able to play but that was kind of all the confirmation you need that his beliefs about his body, his beliefs about this are so strong and unwavering because I think a small part of me had felt like maybe the humiliating experience he had in Australia might possibly convince him to take the vaccine um, or that we could be in a 2018 situation again where he resisted having surgery for so long until it was the last resort and it was, in the end, something to preserve his career and extend his career, so he did have surgery. I thought possibly we might be in a situation like that again with the vaccine. I, I felt more strongly that he wouldn't say that and, and so it's proved. Um, I think what I find odd about his position is that it's both extremely selfish... I think, but also extremely self-destructive and self-detrimental as well. I mean, you know, the level of self-sabotage here is pretty staggering. You know, one of his big worries about taking the vaccine is that as an elite athlete, he's concerned about what he puts into his body in case it affects his performance. Well, frankly, at the moment, not getting the vaccine is affecting his performance because he can't play the biggest events, the ones that matter the most to him. In terms of why it's selfish, I just think because we all have a responsibility. And, you know, he recognises that. He said himself, I understand vaccination has been a big part of the effort. 
It's just that he doesn't want any part in that effort, you know, and I think that is selfish. Um, and, and, and in trying to distance himself from the anti-vax movement, he's saying a lot of things that I'm sure anti-vax people will say. It's my choice. Leave me to make my own decision. I'm doing my own research. And and, and that's presented to you as something really sort of noble and honourable and to be respected. Really, I just think that is disguising selfishness by saying that. And it's it's a rejection of social responsibility. Um, you know, if his behaviour in Australia is anything to go by, he didn't want to have to suffer the consequences of his decision not to take the vaccine. He did everything he could to get into Australia now. He's saying it now that he will accept the consequences. He will sacrifice grand slams, etc. And I respect that more. You know, I think that's I think that's an easier position to maintain. Um, I still think he should have the vaccine. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing is exhausting and pretty sad, really. And I think history will judge him pretty unkindly for this and for a lot of his actions over the last year, year and a half. And he does have a big PR exercise on his hands to to try and earn, earn some respect and, and love back, I think, from a lot of people. David? Yeah, I think a lot of people are pretty tired of, of thinking about it. And when this interview came out, I think there were a lot... A lot of people thought, oh, God, really, do we have to do this? But I, I actually, I think he did need to do this uh, for himself. Um, and I think, I think you were right earlier, Catherine, when you said he should have had a PR firm at his beck and call for years, frankly, because he's he's rejected that. That's another thing he's completely rejected, it seems, any sense that he might not know what he's talking about and might not be saying the best things at, the, uh, at specific times. But... Yeah, it's um, it remains difficult to tally some of those words, as we said at the end of the Australian Open, or the moment that he 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 was deported with with his actions. And yeah, I can't really match those two. I can't believe every word he says, given his behaviour is is the opposite uh, in in many many ways. The fact that he's not taking the vaccine. Well, yeah, we, we've kind of all got to do that or everybody else has got to do it. 99 out of the world's top 100, we now know, have done it. And, you know, you, you, you're talking about the other players and the importance to you of of being looked upon kindly in their eyes and yet you're not prepared to stand alongside them. And that's that's the problem, I think, for a number of a lot of those players and that's also runs alongside him running the PTPA and and again but you're not doing what everybody else is doing it's it just doesn't work um so i think i also think that there may well be part of his decision in coming out with this interview now and being as forceful as he was in saying that he's happy to just jeopardize and and lose his chance of winning the the Grand Slam race if it comes to it because he doesn't think that that's going to happen. He thinks he's going to be. I reckon he thinks he's going to be okay to play the French Open ultimately and to play Wimbledon. Okay, maybe the U.S. Open might might be problematic, but it's quite a while until then. I think it, it's probably a 
a bit of a calculated gamble. He needs to do this for for PR reasons, which I think he does. And I think it's that strong statement is one that, as you say, you find it easier to take in a way, listening to that. And I think he knows that the chances are he'll probably. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. You're right. Well, he's top seed in Dubai this week. Daniil Medvedev is the top seed in Acapulco. There are a lot of permutations. Bottom line, if Medvedev wins the title in Acapulco, he becomes the world number one next Monday, regardless of what Djokovic does in Dubai. Basically, if Medvedev betters Djokovic, um, that's a bit simplistic. Um, but for a, for a rough guide to your week in world rankings, if Medvedev betters what Djokovic does at their respective tournaments, then Medvedev becomes the world number one. Um, Djokovic was quite late onto court this evening in Dubai because he was held up by Andy Murray, who got into a three-hour thriller. You'll be incredibly surprised to hear He's against had a lot of that <laughs> against the months. new Australian sensation Chris O'Connell, of course, of beating Diego Schwartzman at the Australian Open out of absolutely nowhere fame. Good uh, memory, he, I'd forgotten that one. <laughs> oh, we were, but he, do you know who we played next, David? Oh, I remember that one. Maxine <laughs> right, Cressy, okay. in, right in front of your eyes. Was that in front of your eyes? Is that one you, that's it not the one you saw, It was his previous round. It was too hot that day. Um, oh, that was the one with the to, crowd to watch live. going oh. for it and Cressy having to oh, weather oh, it Oh, to be too hot for anything. <laughs> 
Oh, now you're complaining um, about this, are you? Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, we, we move on. We move on. Uh, Andy Murray now plays either Yannick Sinner or Alejandro Davidovich Fakina. Um, Felix Auger it seems withdrawn from the tournament um, all of these players will come up later on when we're discussing various different results and happenings from the week um, shall we go shall we stay in Dubai but go back in time to Yelena Ostapenko <laughs> um, who's decided to just become the player that won the 2017 French Open again uh, and is sweeping all before her. Uh, she beat Sofia Kennan, Iga Svantec, Petra Kvitova and Simona Halep to reach the final uh, where she then just brushed aside Veronica Kudamatova, six, six love, six four. Um, Kudamatova then beat Ostapenko in, in the doubles final alongside uh, Elisa Merton. So a bit of revenge there, but my goodness me, what a player Yelena Ostapenko is when she's in full flight. Um, and, and she just, I don't know. It, 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 it makes me cast my mind back to the, the podcast we recorded after that, that win of hers at the French Open where she beat Simona Halep and, and some hot takes that I had about Elena Ostapenko that will not have aged very well at all. But last week, they they had their moment in the sun again. Those hot takes uh, came back in fashion briefly. And I'd, well, uh, is it is there any point in having the? Is it sustainable? Is it repeatable? <laughs> Can she do it consistently? Chat or should we just swerve that? I mean, I would have thought it is pointless. I mean, she has actually backed it up by being beating Ocean Dodden today, which I think is a, a, a good a good win straight off the back of uh, of Dubai. That's in Doha, but I mean, I think what you can say without any question is when she's on, she can beat anyone in the world, and it's just the most staggering sight, really. And last week. It occurs to me, I, I can't, apart from Petra Kvitova, who I had a vested interest in because I'd picked her to win the tournament in the newsletter predictions, I the only player I will remember, and I do remember from the week, is Ostapenko. It's, so, it's rare that you have a, a tournament of that size, that significance, where the only player of any relevance after it that's worth talking about is the champion. Because... She she beat those players that you've just described, all Grand Slam champions, four of them to get to get to the the final, and they were all notable. They were either her finding a way past Kvitova in an amazing match, or they were her just laying down the hammer in a set and winning it six love, you know, against a top player or six one six two. I think she beat Kenin, and it's. It's funny watching her because all the body language was back and these funny faces that she'd throw when she was angry or irritated, but then the ones where she'd won a point and it was kind of like, yeah, you see? That kind of look in her eyes. Did you see that, coach? Whoa, I'm on it today, is the way that Ostapenko would look. And I just I just love the fact that you come out of the tournament and quite happy to just talk about her. Uh, so we're not going to, it's it's a packed show, we've got a lot to get through. So are we going to not go down the, uh, can Elaine Ostapenko be a force on, on tour rabbit hole? Matt, do you want to go there? I will say this, 
I had written Nostopenko off as a one slam wonder, really. And a week like this makes me think again, because I really don't think it's necessarily about, you know, not being able to do it as a slam. She's shown she can. I think there's no reason why a week like this might not come again at a slam. You know, I, I would still probably say it's more more likely that she won't just because her tennis is so high risk and, you know, she really does have to peak in sort of every match. She's capable of it, but it's, it's difficult to sustain. Um, I was pretty impressed with her fight this week. You know, she beat those Grand Slam champions. She beat, I think, three of them from a set down. And certainly she was very close to losing against Sviontek and against Kvitova. And she just came up with the most incredible shots at the most important time. And that's quite a combination to have when your shots are like Ostapenko's, you know, because there's no margin for error on them. She's just lasering balls into the corner and it's sort of fascinating to watch her pull it off. And and I enjoyed the little rivalry she's got with Hallett because... There was a little exchange of words, Mm. I think, before that match. Ostapenko saying, I know my power troubles her. Look at the French Open final. And Halep saying, well, I've I've won our other matches. It's not too much of a problem. And honestly... It was all very Martina Hingis, wasn't it? (laughs) There is a Martina Hingis energy to Ostapenko when she's in a week like this. Um, And honestly, Ostapenko was kind of right. You know, when, when her power does get going, she can hurt Halep. The way she... Won that second set tiebreak, seven love in that match. And then the third set, six love, just blitzed Halep. And there was nothing really Halep could do. I think she she went a bit mentally in, in, in that final set. But yeah, I mean, makes me think again a week like this about Ostapenko. Just makes me think, yeah, she could do that any time, any place. She's in a Barbora Krachikova's section, the the bottom quarter of the Doha draw this this week. The, there's two two women's events, one in Doha, uh, the first one thousand event of the the WTA season, and uh, a two fifty in Guadalajara where Emirati Kanu is is the top seed. So we've got Sabalenko and Krachikova as the two top seeds in in Doha. We've already had well, we've already had Ostapenko rolling on as you said David she's beaten Dodan today but we've also already had Azarenka against Putintseva oh, um, <laughs> t- tell us everything well <laughs> tell us sort of everything that you can squeeze into about two minutes all right well I've got to say thank you to the Twitter user who I can't remember the name <laughs> of who just alerted us we, we've got people actually alerting us on Twitter to aggro that's happening in matches we might not be watching which I was very grateful for because it's one of those awfully difficult tournaments to follow where it starts on a Sunday and I really struggle with that you know we've got tournaments finishing on Saturdays and Sundays and others starting on Sundays anyway it turned out that Azarenka and Putintseva were were in this epic battle and yeah she and I I went back and rewound after Twitter user alerted me uh, because it was Putintseva who was leading four love in the deciding set Azarenka reeled off four games in a row so four games all and then Putintseva went up 5-4 and then called a medical timeout just before Azarenka was about to go and serve to stay in the match and Azarenka, the look on her face, I think they'd had some words before this already by this time. She just said, are you going to allow that? 
she's allowed to do this. She's allowed to call the trainer before I'm about to serve. And uh, and then she said to Maria Chichak, and she smashed her racket seven times. And Chichak held up four fingers to say, I think it was four. <laughs> um, and so Serenka went, well, I like that matters. Um, and then she said, trainer she needs to see a psychiatrist she said to her and uh, so out came out comes the trainer and uh treats her and well it didn't do any good because azarenka reeled off the next three games and won the match um but the handshake was you know often you you'll find that the losing player does a sort of no look handshake um well both players did a no look handshake it was amazing they're sort of looking <laughs> diagonally across into the void as their as their palms touched and uh oh it was the most delicious thing and azarenka said afterwards a lot of unnecessary things happened on the court tonight yeah, but if people only did the necessary things, then it would be a boring old world, wouldn't it? She loved it, really. <laughs> yeah. I think my favourite moment was immediately after the medical timeout, Putin Saver sprinted back to the baseline. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Azarenka marches on in Doha. That's a 1,000 event. Um, do Dubai this week is a 500 event for the men. They're doing that. They're doing that. Each has the men's and the women's one week and then they switch for the following week. So the men were in Doha last week. Uh, Roberto Bautista Ogut was the champion there. He beat Nicolas Basilashvili in the final. He had beaten um, Andy Murray, love and won, uh, en route to that title in the second round, I think, so a few uh, a few notable results there um and Neil Skubsky and Wesley Kulhoff uh, won their third title of the year in the doubles there they beat Denis Shapovalov and uh, Rohan Bopana and Denis Shapovalov is low key remaining very committed to playing doubles isn't he which I, is one of those quirks about him which doesn't quite tally um with the rest of the things i know about him i i, I really like it um i wish his singles results were better at the moment, but uh, I I like that he's not you know ditching the doubles. I like that you know he obviously has a commitment with Bapana and and he sticks to that, and I think that's great. Um, what else happened last week? Well, there were a number of other men's tournaments. We got this as we talked about last week. This really uh, really lopsided situation where we only had the ones one women's tournament, but uh, one two three four 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 men's events. Um, we had. Marseille, where Andre Rublev got revenge over Felix Auger-Aliassime, 7-5, 7-6. He did the double. He won the doubles with Denis Molkanov. Um, who watched this? Hands up, please. Do you mean the doubles with Denis Molkanov or the final? <laughs> I mean, final. if you watch that, um, then I will reward you with time to talk about it. Uh, but assuming that you didn't, tell us about Rublev beating Auger-Aliassime. <laughs> It was, yes, I do mean the uh, singles final was the one I watched, of course. A um, bit of an odd match, I thought, actually, because they'd, they'd played a really good match in Rotterdam in the semifinals, which Auger-Elia seemed won. Obviously, Rublev got his revenge here. I, th- I thought it was quite up and down. I didn't think the level was was brilliant for me, the player, through most of the match. Um Auger-Elia seemed looked a little bit spent to me, physically, mentally, maybe just the last 10 days. Obviously, mm. he played a lot of matches. He'd done a you know a big first for him in his career, winning his first title. Um, 
Rublev, I think, hadn't actually played that well throughout the week. So I think the final was the only was the real test of where his level was. And yeah, I didn't think, as I said, I didn't think it was a great quality match. But for Rublev to win, I think it's important because he hasn't won a title for a while, and and that was his thing for so long. He was picking up titles mm. like this. He was he was Mister ATP two fifty. Yeah, wasn't exactly. He? And I think his last title was Rotterdam about a year ago. Um, they have a history of tight matches, Rublev and Auger Aliassim, and, and this was another one, 7-5, 7-6 to Rublev. It got interesting towards the end when Rublev tried to serve it out. Auger Aliassim played a great game to break him back, and then Rublev held his nerve in, in the second set tiebreak. Not a huge amount to say, I don't think. Obviously, it's great for Rublev to win a title, and for Auger Aliassim, I just think nothing more than another good week Okay, he didn't win the final, but he, you know, it wasn't like his old finals. It was, it was, it was fine. He, it wasn't the occasion that got to him or anything like that. I think he's just run out of gas a bit, and that is, as you said at the start of the show, Catherine. I think, sort of played out in the fact that he's withdrawn from from Dubai this week. I think he just needs a bit of a rest from what's been a really successful start to the season. Yeah, I, I was sort of relieved to see that. Really, I was a little surprised he didn't. Um didn't actually pull out of last week and rest ahead of Dubai, but obviously wanted to, I don't know, keep going, keep the momentum rolling. Um, so Rublev, a titleist in Marseille, down in Rio, uh, where the sun was shining and they were playing on clay. Um, it was all very discombobulating to go from watching one tournament to another. But down in Rio, 18-year-old Carlos Alcaraz beat Diego Schwartzman 6-4-6-2 to lift his first ATP Tour title at 500 level. He had beaten Matteo Berrettini in the semi-finals. He had beaten Fabio Fonini before that. He he's just the business. He's I, I mean we've said he's the real deal before. He's all he's doing is is proving it if it needed to be proved I'm not sure it does but he was he was making him look ordinary quite frankly and he was doing it in so many different ways there was the bludgeoning power and the perfect shot selection there's this I mean his forehand drop shot is it's naughty it's it <laughs> sounded so partridge then it's it's um it's de- devilish. It's sorcery is what it is. And you just don't know when it's coming. And he always seems to play at it exactly the right time. Um, yeah. How are you feeling about your French Open prediction, David? Pretty good. It's rude. It is the old forehand drop shot. Um, but also his quick sil- silver feet. He's so fast across the ground. Um, and he he's just getting better. It seems to me. Um, I don't know which 20 minutes you saw where the sun was shining, though, Catherine. This was a, a tournament bedeviled by rain. And, uh, they, I mean, they did have, I think, some, some sunny intervals, we call them, don't we, here in the UK. But blimey, it rained like it was Queens. It was extremely uh, the, the, confusing the week because Dubai and Doha had finished because their finals were on the Saturday. And Rio was still mm. stuck trying to finish the quarterfinals. The whole thing was out of it was, sync. It, there was a very confusing sort of two-hour period where I didn't even know what week it was. <laughs> um, and, you know, you've got indoor tournaments happening, you've got outdoor tournaments, you've got clay court tournaments. It's it's that weird time of the year, folks. I, I'm afraid I, I have to do another 
Nadal Alcaraz comparison. And I know I know people don't like to hear it sometimes, but it's just impossible to get away from. I mean, this is the second title of his career. His his first one was in Umag on clay last year. Now, I'm not suggesting that Alcaraz is about to do what Nadal did in his second big full year, but what Nadal did was he won Sopot in 2004 and then the next year he won the two South American clay court tournaments in February um and now I, th- I believe Alcaraz has actually pulled out of of Acapulco I think he's just uh just nursing a bit of a, an injury there which I don't think it's the worst idea in the world but actually looking up at Nadal's stats back then I didn't realize that that was his most successful year ever in terms of titles won 2005 he won 11 titles that year including the French Open of course now I don't think Alcaraz is about to win 11 titles this year but he he does give you the same sort of feel that Nadal gave back then because I remember it vividly and nothing has changed my mind from what I've seen for Alcaraz I don't think he's the favorite for the French Open on paper but I'm still picking him is he in the mix course is in the mix gonna win it that's a that's a very good question are you saying david even though you're picking it that you you won't be at all surprised if he wins it no no that, no i really won't mixed i mean definition to, to my mind he is objectively in the mix aside from <laughs> me just wanting to go big and get something right that everybody goes wow at, i mean surely he object is he not in your mix i'll turn it around I think he's a contender, for sure. I mean, I was I was just dazzled by him by by what I saw of him um, in Rio last week. I think he's a contender, but by our definition of the mix, I'm not sure he meets it because I think I still would be surprised if he won it. Um, now, this may be a failing of our definition of the mix, which seems to keep <laughs> occurring. We might have stitched ourselves up with the definition but that's for another day as the mixed definition stands at the moment I think he's not in it but I also don't think the prediction is particularly outlandish David yeah I would agree with that and I think there's time for him between now and the French Open to get himself properly into in the, the mix. mix and I'm sure that's his main motivation <laughs> He's into the top 20 now. He's the youngest, again, a Nadal comparison. He's he's into the top 20 at a younger age than Nadal. I think Nadal was was the youngest for a long time and Alcaraz is, is the youngest since Andre Medvedev in, in 1993 to get into the top 20. Um, and I agree. I, I thought Schwartzman actually just accentuated and highlighted how good Alcaraz is because, you know, put respect on Schwartzman's name. Like, he's a great player. He's he's reached Grand Slam semifinals. He's been in the ATP finals. He's consistently been at the top. And you just looked at Alcaraz and you just thought, well, he's got so much more in his game. He's got so much more potential. He can win points in so many different ways. He just looks so much more complete already. And yet, also he can get so much better. Like, it, it was just a match and a, a week for Alcaraz, which highlighted how good he already is and, I think, how, how great he can become. His serve's improved, hasn't it? I think. 
he's he's improving um, all the time. And and I think actually that yeah. point about his scheduling fearsome. You know, he's not playing a lot. He started the season at the Australian Open, didn't he? He's just played this one event in Rio. He's pulled out of the next week. That's mm. that feels mature and kind of ahead of his time. He he, he seems he physically ready. Too much, in my opinion. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very good point. Um, so Alcaraz, a titleist in Rio, won't be playing this week. Not sure whether he's scheduled to play next, he, he's playing, next week. He's playing but, uh, Davis Cup. He, he's been picked for Spain oh, in, in their match, which is on clay. So maybe that's another reason he maybe didn't want to switch back to hard court for Acapulco. Yeah. And then, of course, he'll be going back to hard courts for, for Indian Wells, which would be very interesting indeed. Uh, one last uh, title to wrap up for you from last week, from the the very, very lovely and and very sunshiny David Delray Beach. I've been there many times, uh, and I, I love that little event. Um, and the champion was Great Britain's Cameron Norrie, top seed Cam Norrie, third title for him, beat Riley Apelka in... Drum roll, please. Two tie breaks. 7-6, seven, 7-6. Six, seven, six. Uh, he also beat Tommy Paul and he beat um, Sebastian Corder in a deciding set tie break. Big win that, I think. I know we're a bit kind of juries out on the exact potential of Sebastian Corder, but he's a, he's a good player. Beat him in Australia and he, he was playing well that day, I think. And, and you know, this is this is the difficult second season for Cam Norrie yeah. and I know it's early days I know he's got Indian Wells title defence coming up who knows what the actual year will look like but just this I think is is really big and gritty from him Impressive it is uh, because I was worried a bit for him when he think he lost about the first four matches of the season that he played and he, he some of them were close but I got the sense that he'd maybe come out the off season thinking right you know I'm a top 10 player I'm going to add to my game I'm going to develop weapons you know the way that players think that they need to do when they when they've had a breakthrough season and I, and I was slightly concerned that he was going to get a shock and uh, and that he was getting one because his meat and potatoes is grinding his just being a nightmare for opponents and well, he got himself back to his baseline level in, in that Delray Beach tournament. I watched most of that final against Apelka, and it was quite interesting watching Apelka hating the high-bouncing ball of, of Norrie coming up high on his shoulders. And it, to think that the ball could get up on a seven-foot-tall guy the way it was doing. And he's just he's just such a clever match player. He And, and it felt like him and... John Millman kind of double teamed Riley Apelka in back-to-back matches, two <laughs> grinders who just sort of said, right, well, you take his legs and I'll finish him off. Um, and <laughs> that's kind but of do, what happened. Do, how much does he need his legs, David? It's just his arm, isn't it? <laughs> well, need that foundation. But I yeah, think, I think I know, Norrie I know. did I'm being really, facetious. really well to win that title. <laughs> I think winning the title as the number one seed to me is is quite impressive for Nori because I always think that he's better as an underdog and I think I think mm. part of why I was worried about him this year was how he's going to deal with that new status as a top player and as a favorite in a lot of matches and you know as the top seed he was pretty much the favorite in every match he played this week in in Delray Beach certainly sort of 50-50 in them and he dealt with that really well and just any kind of backing up of last season, I think, at all is going to be impressive from Cameron Norrie. So, so to do that, to overcome that so start of the season, get a title, 
just I continue to be really, really impressed with with Nori. Mm, seconded. We're all very impressed with you, Cam Nori. Um, <laughs> some news from away from the court. We've wrapped up all all the results for you from last week. There were there were still other goings on. Uh, we had Yannick Sinner uh, dispensing with his entire coaching team now there were rumors swirling in the italian press that he was he was poised to split with ricardo piatti of course his his very well-known quite long-time coach they've talked a lot about you know how they had this plan together it was a long-term plan about you know just incrementally making improvements um but so so perhaps that announcement to those in the know wasn't wasn't that much of a surprise i think the fact that he is intent it, it dispensed with his whole team uh, perhaps does come as a surprise he says after many successful years together i've decided to part ways my coaching team i'd like to thank ricardo dalibor claudio andrea christian and gaia for everything they've done for me from the beginning of my career until now he plays a particular tribute to uh, ricardo piatti says they have um many special memories together. He says, happy to announce I'll be working with Simone Vagnossi uh, as my coach moving forward and he will be heading up my team. Currently, we have no plans to add any more team members. Um, so what what team he'll be headed up, heading up is uh, is very much a mystery. Um, uh, but he says, we'll review the situation as we go. Uh, excited to start this new chapter at Forza. Uh, Vagnossi has previously worked with Cecchinato and Stefano Travaglia. Um, yeah, get, get jettisoning everyone around you. Um, you know, I I thought I thought Yannick Sinner was sort of you know ticking off milestones and not doing the big loud shout it from the rooftops I've arrived thing, but was just slowly slowly getting there. You know, I'm I'm pretty shocked by this. I have to say, I was shocked. Yeah, I mean, there were rumours throughout the Australian Open that he was looking to bring in a super coach, I think, I think were the words. And in the subsequent weeks, there have been rumours about Magnus Norman, potentially. Simone Vagnossi has never felt so super. (laughs) But um, I agree, because Sinner's thing has always been long term. You know, he's talked with Piatti about 150 matches and then seeing where they are on the ATP Tour. He's at about 120, 130 now. So he's he's cut that short. And it's a big thing to part from Piatti because, as you said, that's kind of a, kind of a paternal role Piatti had there. You know, Sinna moved location in Italy to go and train with Piatti when he was younger and he, he gave up skiing and all that and... You know, Piatti really, I think, took him under his wing. And, you know, it's a big thing that he's no longer with him. And it always seemed such a positive for Sinner that he wasn't in a hurry, that he was methodical and he had this sort of long-term approach. And this does seem completely at odds with that and a complete shift. And, look, I don't think we know the reasons, but it's odd because it seemed at the end of last season he was maybe turning a bit of a corner as well. And he was he was starting to learn more about himself on court and he was making strides and I don't know whether whether that experience against Sitsipas at the Australian Open has has shocked him a little bit because he was so far off in that match it sounds to me like it's maybe been in his mind a bit longer than that but yeah I I do find it odd I think 
I mean, if we use Yannick Sinner's own terminology about all this, maybe maybe he expected to be a cook by now, and he's and he's he's still peeling potatoes, and he just he just wants wants to speed the process up a bit, and he's and he's therefore taken a radical decision, but it's it's very much against his sort of ethos so far. So it's an odd one. Wants to skip the main course and go straight to dessert, <laughs> like. Like my granny always used to when we sat down at a restaurant. Could I have the dessert menu, please? <laughs> what ice creams do you have? <laughs> um, we, we've we also had the news uh, this week uh, from the Davis Cup uh, that they're making some changes to the format of the group stages. They say this follows from uh, on from player and captain feedback on how to relieve the stress of the hectic tennis calendar. They're allowing the season to end one week earlier. So the group stages of the Davis Cup finals will be held from the 14th to the 18th of September. Four groups of four each one taking place in a different city. The bidding to become one of the host cities for the group stage is already underway. Uh, those selected to be announced in March. Two best teams in each group will progress to the knockout rounds. Uh, so the knockout rounds, uh, so the, the quarterfinals onwards, they'll be held in a neutral venue, which is yet to be announced, but expected to be in the Middle East between the 23rd to the 27th of November. And that's the stage of the tournament that we do expect to be in Abu Dhabi, as was very widely reported um, at the end of last season. But certainly, you know, we'll get into that as and when it's announced. Um, But certainly allowing the season to end a week earlier feels like no bad thing for for a sport that never, ever seems to end. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I, the same, and I, th- I think that they might, apart from the the fact that they're going to have this final stage in most likely Abu Dhabi, which we've talked about, and the problems with that. Um, some of these changes, I think, are probably for the better. It's just that, and I understand the consultation process with the captains and the players, and that's good. But it just all feels like it's being done on the fly, and every year it's changing and it becomes harder and harder to to follow i think for the the general punter and and by struggling to follow you struggle to care that's they need they need to get this sorted really and then have a a period of continuity where this is the davis cup now and we've got it right and let's have it every year or every two years or every, whatever it is but i don't think all the problems are solved yeah it's mm. kind of a difficult balance because i like their willingness to change and improve rather than stick with something that isn't working but at the same time you know with this change we're not actually that far now from the old format in terms of how many weeks it's taking up in the calendar which was one of the problems with the old format you know that used to take up four weeks this is now taking up three we got the qualifiers very soon then we got the group stages then we got the knockout phase um, right at the end of the year so yeah, I mean, I like it in one sense. You get more more teams at home, you know, in in those group stages. I, th- I think that can work. But as as you said, we're we're on the record with what we think about the knockout phase being, if it is in Abu Dhabi, being there. And I think ultimately that's going to be kind of the biggest problem that people are not going to get behind. Mm, yeah, watch this space on that front. Um, one last bit of news for you from uh, from the last 
couple of weeks, um, which you you probably haven't heard about. Um, uh, we just wanted to to mention and, and pay tribute to the late Jimmy Moore, um, who is the former referee of Queens, um, who we variously have worked with for for many years. David for very very many years. Um, he passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, it was it was um, it was the end of an era, David. Really, really sad news. Yeah, forty two years he was the referee at Queens between nineteen seventy eight and twenty nineteen was Jimmy Moore, and just one of those people you were always happy to see. And the tournament, if he wasn't there, wasn't the same. And last year he wasn't there, and it wasn't the same. I mean, the people there did a good job, but Jimmy was such a a jolly presence whenever you would come into his office Australian he was a former player he competed against Rod Laver and Ken Rosewell and Roy Emerson back in the day but we knew him as a referee he was there through all of my 25 years and many more beyond he 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 had a memorable moment coming down to the side of the court when John McEnroe was demanding the presence of the referee back in 1984 and uh and Jimmy just sort of stood there heard him out and just said yeah, time to go and play now, John. And uh, and John just looked at him and said, uh, "You you guys just sit there like two bumps on a log." And uh, and the next day it was reported in the Sun newspaper that he'd said that they sit there like two bums on a log. And uh, Jimmy was always very quick to to correct that assertion, although he quite liked being in the newspaper actually the, the, the following day. <laughs> in, in truth, but he was just a, he was a lovely fella and. McEnroe and he made it all up many years later McEnroe presented him with a with a trophy and, and vice versa and uh, and he, he will be so sadly missed by so many in the in the tennis world including me including yeah. all of us yeah absolutely one of the best tashes in tennis Jimmy had <laughs> yeah brilliant tash um I think that's just about it from a very very busy week in tennis I'm sure the next one will be just the same. As I said, we've got events in Dubai, Doha, Acapulco, Guadalajara, uh, w- WTA event there where Emma, Emma Raducanu is the top seed. Uh, so we'll be keeping a very close eye on that one. Um, and we could have a new men's world number one come next week. So we'll have plenty to talk about, folks. Um, our mascot for this week is Casper. Um and he's so lovely. I'm looking at a picture of him now. He looks like a puppy, I have to say. He's three years old. Uh, he's a Border Collie owned by Alison. Uh, Alison, he is so beautifully groomed. That that head of hair on Casper, is. Ju- I just want to delve my face into it. It is so, <laughs> so beautiful. Uh, and he's looking at me right now. He's got his tongue out and he's just making me smile. So thank you very much, Alison, for bringing Casper into our lives and for being a friend of the tennis podcast. Um, we have our own mascots. Uh, Billie Jean has Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. She has slept peacefully uh, in the background of our Zoom recording throughout this podcast. So well done, Billie Jean, for not interrupting. Um, David has Darwin. Matt has Gerald. I have Carter. I think. Think were all of our predictions this week decimated by Elena Ostapenko? No, not yours were. Mine was decimated by Carlos Alcaraz, Um, but Elena Ostapenko is is a predictions 
heartbreaker. Mine by Marketa von Drosheva, also a predictions heartbreaker. Oh, yes, she is. Yes, she is. Um, we have our executive producers and top blokes, Chris Albert Lee and Kyle Weingartner. Hello to you both. Thank you for being our executive producers. And Matt, we have shout outs. We have James Nathan from Auckland, but currently living in Hong Kong. Hello, James. Do we know James? James I feel like that's a uh, name that we know. Yeah, James writes to us, I believe, on Twitter. Mm. Uh, oh, and, yes. Uh, yeah, he, he's been somebody who's been around for a good old while and uh, we much appreciate his support. Right, James? Hello, James. I think uh, Hong Kong's or, or parts of Hong Kong are in lockdown, aren't they? So I um, hope you're all right. Uh, stay strong and, uh, yeah, stay safe. We have Cheryl Harris from New Jersey. Oh, home of Bruce. And she says, I became obsessed with tennis as a child after watching The Battle of the Sexes, which my mum insisted I watch with her. Oh, we like Cheryl. Yes, Brilliant. Cheryl and Cheryl's like Cheryl. mum. Cheryl and Cheryl's <laughs> mum. Hello to you both. That is, that's brilliant. I absolutely love that. Hello, Cheryl. Thank you for your support. And we have Will Beckman, who says, not Beckham. I had enough of that during my childhood. Uh, Will Will is from <laughs> South East London. He's a listener since 2018. Hasn't missed an episode. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns and says our family dog Rory is a cavapoo like Billy Jean oh hey. good work Will love that very much and my my godson my guide son uh, is called Rory so we like that name and we like cavapoos and we like you Will uh, thank you very much uh, for your support. Thank you to all of you. Thank you for listening. Sign up to the newsletter. Tell your friends. Leave us an iTunes review. Um, oh, it's Apple Podcasts now, isn't it? Uh, I sound 100 years old. Uh, leave us a review anywhere you like. <laughs> Just tell the internet that we're brilliant. Uh, and we'll speak to you next week uh, for another tennis podcast. 